everyone. Welcome to episode 89 of the MTG Grandcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Apple, and with me, as always, is Collins Mullen. Hey, Collins. Hey, Chris. What's up? How was your weekend? It was good. It was pretty chill. Mm-hmm. I didn't really do much. I uh, <laughs> didn't. Do I, a, I thought you went to a wedding. I, well, okay, yeah. In terms of magic, I didn't really okay. do much. Okay. Yeah, um, but I did. I went to a wedding. So congratulations to Carol and Isaac, the newlyweds. They're uh, friends of ours. So friends of yours and your people. I have yeah, no idea right. That's who, fair. Who they are? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But sure, congratulations to them. Sounds yeah. great. Beautiful wedding, I hope. It was perfect. Great. Yeah. And, the, and honestly, they had such a good... <laughs> this is going to be a wedding podcast now. <laughs> but I want to give them a shout out for uh, knowing like how long to keep the reception. Because some of the receptions of weddings I've been to have been like an hour long. And people were miserable and sitting there. But it was like 15 minutes. We got everything in. And oh, then this, the ceremony itself. The ceremony. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. The reception. Yeah, yeah. The reception's supposed to be... Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm mixing up all the terms. Sure. But, yeah. If you know how bad I am in terms of magic, don't <laughs> worry. It comes to real life. Don't worry, it translates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know the name of anything in real life either. So. We get by, though. Yeah. I usually understand what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why we get along so well. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm only good at translating usually with magic stuff. Fair. Real life stuff, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, this weekend, there was SCG Cleveland which neither of us made it to, but uh, definitely watched some coverage and have paid attention to this stuff. So we're going to talk about some modern. Also getting way more spoilers, uh, lots of planeswalkers. So that's very exciting. And we will talk about some of those. Uh, Before we get started, want to take a second and thank our patrons for supporting us. Really, really appreciate the help. Thanks for coming and hanging out in the Discord. Thank you for Oh, man, it is really hot in here. The air conditioning is not turned on right now, and I'm sweating. (laughs) Cool. Um, Cool. Sweaty podcast. Yes. Well, fortunately... About about weddings. Fortunately, you guys can't see us, but... But, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Really appreciate it. We should start things off with a Keeper Mall. So this one comes from Dubes in our chat. This is... uh, A Dredge Keeper Mall. And I, I think Dredge Hands are some of the more interesting... They certainly can be. Yeah. Yeah, because they're, they're always pretty unintuitive. It's not like we have so many heuristics for, oh, I need my certain kind of spell or whatever. But Dredge is like, okay, it's all about the draw steps and weird stuff. Right. And and you have to, like, keep into – take into account, like, once you start doing stuff with your deck, you don't get draw steps anymore. And mm-hmm. so how many actual draw steps can you afford to take to find your missing piece or whatever? And, yeah. And then number of lands is really important. And, and th- with this hand, I think that's the key. So this is a six-card hand. We are on the play versus Mono Red Phoenix. And our hand is one land, a Bloodstained Mire. We've got a Shriekhorn and a Faithless Looting, two Stinkweed Imps, and a Prized Amalgam. Mm-hmm. So first off, what do we think about keeping this hand? I think this hand's good. Yeah. Um, it's not great. Dredge really needs two lands to operate mm-hmm. appropriately. But it, it's good. It has a lot of the pieces that we're looking for. And... I feel like the lines that we take with this hand are actually kind of matchup dependent, Mm -hmm. where you need to know if you can blitz your opponent Mm -hmm. or not. So, right, so it's a one-lander on the play. Mm -hmm. We have a Shriekhorn and a Faithless Looting and Dredgers and a a Prize Amalgam. So we have, like, everything that we need except for the second land. Right. Unfortunately, the second land is... Really important for for functioning appropriately, yeah. um, because if you if you're gonna op- try to operate on a one lander, you really need to spike a 
an Archimiba mm-hmm. to get your kind of engine going. But right. I'm not because we can't trigger bloodgasts. Yeah. We can't life from the loam. Like we have to sort of rely on our deck to do things the hard way a little bit. Yeah. You know, so there there would be some matchups where you like are gonna like try to spike where you would go um, turn one tree corn mill me untap upkeep mill me hopefully dredge cast faithless looting dredge dredge mm-hmm. you know put the prize amalgam in the bin Ho- hopefully something happens there right yeah the likelihood of something happening there though is pretty small you have to hit exactly Narcomiba. Um, and, and we have to hit a dredge card with those yeah, uh, right. tree corn activations to, yeah. if that's our plan there. So I actually think with a hand like this, my line is to play the tree corn on turn one, mm-hmm. dredge myself, and but then take a regular draw step. Mm-hmm. And then cast Faithless Looting, taking regular draw steps until I hit the land. Mm-hmm. Right, And it's probably even more important to... You know, you have to make these judgment calls based on whether or not you hit your dredgers, but um, I would even mill myself with the Shriekhorn before casting Faithless Looting mm-hmm. if my draw step was not a land, but still take regular draw steps. Because what you can do is when you when you cast your Faithless Looting off the first draw, if you spike the land, then on the second draw you can dredge. Right. So you're incentivized to have dredged or milled yourself with the tree corn before casting your faithless looting, even if you still are looking for lands, mm-hmm. just in case you spike it on the first draw and you want your second draw to be, you know, a dredger. So you can actually like start going. Yeah. Um, but I think that the mistake that a lot of like newer dredge players would make here would be just slamming the tree corn or milling yourself a bunch. And then uh, if you hit a dredger casting faithless looting and dredging more and just like hoping that it works out, Without the second land, I'm here to tell you it's not going to work out without the second land. You're going to have to get your second (laughs) land in order to operate with this deck. Your opponent is also going to be doing powerful things, and you need to match that. Right. And so one of the interesting things, too, is so our scry reveals a cathartic reunion on top. Yeah. um, Which is extremely powerful. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, you loved going... Like, the best thing you can possibly do is turn one Faithless Looting, turn two Cathartic Reunion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Cathartic Reunion is not a second land and also depends on having that second land. So yeah. what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's just pretty, give it up. I think it's a pretty clear bottom okay. in my mind. Finding your second land is too important. And like the only scenario in which I would feel like I could potentially want to keep that on top is if like I, you know, I had a non-fetched land land and I could cast my Faithless Looting turn one to try to draw it and then spike a land. But I would only ever keep it on top if I could make that play and my opponent was like a four recipe deck that I like really wanted to blitz out. And right. I like needed to like spike something powerful. Gotcha. So, so you're, yeah, you really want to make that high variance play that can train wreck itself, but it gives you the ability to beat a very powerful thing right. from Right, yeah. If opponent. I knew my opponent was on like a deck that I knew they, were, they had like four rest in pieces or something mm-hmm. post board and I, and I was on the play and I, I like my only way to win is to like put power into play on turn two yeah. on the play, like I'd consider it. But here we know the matchup yeah. is versus Mono Red Phoenix. Yeah, you just... And we know that's a pretty good matchup because we just need to hit a couple of creeping chills really to, yeah, to be yeah, right yeah. in it. For sure. So yeah, I, I think that I would definitely bottom the cathartic. It's not your second land. And then make your plays optimizing... Finding your next land, but don't be afraid to mill yourself with street corn. Another thing that I see players do in this spot a lot is that they like need the second land and they just don't mill themselves. Mm-hmm. It's the same odds on whether or not you're going to draw your land or not, whether or not you mill yourself. So you might as well go ahead and cash in those tree corn counters right because once you do find your next land, you want to be fueled up and ready to go. Right. And it really only matters for 
if it's in the middle of the faithless looting that you want to switch from drawing to dredging, but or, or if you're giving up a shriekhorn activation for an untapped yeah or exactly right, yeah, that's right, not right. good for sure definitely a lot of strange intricacies with this hand so yeah i like it yeah very cool so we'll just move on to some more modern discussion uh probably gonna pretty focus on scg cleveland yep. pretty cool results even just looking at the top eight uh especially zach allen's sort of homebrew esper yeah, control in the i finals. was super excited to see this esper control deck uh kaya Orzov Usurper is making a splash. It looked great. Uh, yeah, I mean, so Zan has been testing this list a little bit, and and I was I was playing vintage in in my room, and <laughs> Zan like yells across the room, and he's like, Collins. Kaya's broken. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I'd like to like list out and like count on my fingers the number of cards that I've heard Zen tell me <laughs> are broken. Okay, well, that might be a lot. <laughs> I've, I've heard, you know, teams in team tournaments be described as broken. Mm-hmm. I've heard mm-hmm. uh, uh, w- bridge war be described as broken. Well, broken is just our favorite word. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's you know. a really right. useful word to have. As long as you can... Use context clues to understand what it is supposed to yeah, it makes, imply. It makes it a little tough, for sure. You know, we're muddling the muddling the waters a little bit by calling everything broken. But, you know, we, we do what we can to stay excited about things. Um, yeah, but Kaya, pretty cool, especially with multiple Death Shadow-based decks in the top eight. If Kaya yeah. ever comes down and murders a Death Shadow, then yeah. you're in a good spot. Right. Yeah, and, you know, to be clear... I don't think Kai's anywhere near broken, but I think it's a good one of. You know, I think it's really solid. It has a lot of utility. Playing three Nihil spell bombs in the main deck, so sometimes your Kaya can just kill them. Um, yeah. You know, if they just like have a big graveyard, and you're like, okay, get rid of that, kill you with Kaya. It's just you know, tick up, tick up. Kind of hilarious, yeah. Yeah. Um, also, well, so, and this is a good example of something that I. And I mean, this This is a one, one-off example, and it may not actually be indicative of any of this. But what this is, what we see here, is a deck, a control deck in Modern, crafted very specifically to attack specific cards and decks that are present in the metagame. Yeah. That can only happen when you have a metagame. Right. And I know everybody is yelling about Phoenix. Right. But... Having a deck be a large proportion of the metagame and another large portion of the metagame is responding to that deck, mm-hmm. now we have ways of exploiting the format yeah. without just playing, you know, the the metagame's getting faster, I'm going to play a turn three deck and try to win. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, now we can say, okay, well, the cards that are really good right now are Nile Spellbomb, Path to Exile, and Fatal Push, and yeah. I want a couple of Supreme Verdicts. Yeah. That's, you can't, you couldn't do that in Modern define some decks and now maybe right. we can do this sort of thing yeah no i mean you know i people have their own kind of definitions of what creates a healthy format mm-hmm. but i think that this deck doing well is definitely indicative of um you know the format's definitely in a in a pretty a reasonably predictable spot yeah yeah i mean just looking at the list i don't know if zach allen ever lost to phoenix you know oh, no. <laughs> right he's he's probably very well set up in that matchup fatal pushes pat to exiles nile spell bombs like just those 10 slots in his main deck, yeah. I don't want to play against with Phoenix. Yeah, it sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, and then add four Snapcasters to those Fatal Pushes and Path to Exit. Like, how do you even deal damage to him with Phoenix? Right. So yeah. It's crazy. You know, and he's got a couple of Surgicals in, this, in the sideboard that I'm sure he brings <laughs> he probably in. probably doesn't even need. Uh, well, like... probably not, you know, but, you know, it's a, it's a good... It's a good thing to have with four Snapcaster Mages. Yes, you know, yes. So. Um, also, one 
thing that I've been looking for an opportunity to talk about, and this is not actually a good opportunity to talk about it. But okay. one thing that I do want to mention is like, yes, I think his main deck matchup against Phoenix is quite good. I think the surgicals in the sideboard are still a good inclusion because you take a matchup that maybe is like 65% or something like that. Sure. If that matchup is 20, 25% of the field and you increase that by another 10%, like it's not, it doesn't matter that it's already a good matchup and you're making it a really good matchup. Like those percentage points are the same thing as if you had a sideboard card that worked against another 20% of the field that was your bad matchups and gained yeah. you 10%. Yeah. So, and that, that 10% increase in that matchup is amplified by the heavy representation of the matchup that you're trying to face. Yeah. So and, it might and, even be worth more. You know? and, and specifically the heavy representation of that matchup in the winner's bracket. Right. Is, you right. Know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like our shortcut of, you know, don't work too hard to improve your good matchups, target the the bad matchups is mostly just because it's easier to buy percentage points in bad matchups mm-hmm. because they're like easily fixable things. There's cards you can take out and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. But including haymakers for good matchups that make them even better is still powerful. So. Yeah. Definitely agree with all that. But yeah. So Cool deck. I wonder if we're going to see more. Like, I, I I mean, I think that a trend that happens when somebody spikes with a cool new deck is that people are going to try it out. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure that a bunch of new people are playing this on Moto. Some people might really enjoy it and decide to take it to tournaments. Like, that's just going to translate into seeing more Esper control. Yeah. Who knows if it's going to become, like, a real percentage of the meta game? Mm-hmm. If it's true that it just, like, really beats up on Phoenix, maybe it's, like, the next meta deck that we need to yeah. kind of restore balance to the modern format and what if we get sort of this not even necessarily rock paper scissors but decks with specific matchups taking up portions of the metagame and then churning through them i honestly think that would be pretty healthy for modern if that's yeah where this heads right for sure and we've even seen that trend happen before in modern mm-hmm. of just like you know decks get really dominant and then you know it there's a predator that becomes right even more like you know when humans came out Jeskai Control became a huge deck because it beat up so well on humans. Right. And then Jeskai Control was a solid percentage of the metagame. Um, you know, and then that kind of like made humans die out a little bit and then the wheel continued to... Right. Continue and, to and before that, humans did that to Death Shadow. Right, right, right. Yeah. So this Esper Control deck, though, also like has clear bad matchups, I think. And I, yes. I have to imagine that these Amulet Titan <laughs> decks in the top eight yeah, were I not mean, afraid of playing against Esper Control. Matthew Dilks does it again with Amulet <laughs> Titan. He's been on a tear, clearly a master with this deck. Very cool to watch. He's been uh, he's been on Hivemind. Yeah, a so couple of different lists. That's definitely I think interesting. Both of these top eight lists had Hivemind. I know mm-hmm. Rossum was not on it. He had them in his sideboard. And I think yeah. he finished top 16 in this tournament. Yeah, he got exactly 16. 16th place. Yeah. That counts. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it doesn't count. <laughs> it doesn't count. <laughs> so what's the... I I do not have experience with card selection for Amulet Titan. I don't know if you have any insight into why Hive Mind now over not. So I... I'm, I'm by no means an expert on Amulet Titan, so I'm sure that the Titan players listening might yell at me for all this. But I believe but you had dinner with the Canadians. I, I've had had dinner with the Canadians for sure. Um, they're great. As far as I know, the hive minds are kind of to shore up some matchups that mm-hmm. otherwise might be a little more difficult with Titans. Mm-hmm. You just want to diversify your, you know, ability to win the game um, because it, you know, there's definitely some matchups where. 
there's not really much you can do when you resolve your Titan. Because the whole plan of Amulet Titan is to resolve your Titan and then use that to create a board state where you can't lose. Yeah. And sometimes that's just as simple as resolve Titan, pick up a Teleria West transmute for Pact and pass the turn. Mm -hmm. Like if you're playing against a combo deck or something that's like trying to resolve a spell, that generally wins because you have your Pact available, you can Pact their thing if they go for it, but otherwise you're going to untap with the Titan and then the game actually just ends. Yeah. But there, I think that there are some matchups, and I, I wouldn't even be able to name them, but where they were just kind of looking for something that just like ended the game on the spot mm-hmm. and wasn't as like interactable. So I yeah. think that's what it's for. But you know, my experience with the deck is very minimal. So. Yeah, yeah, and I I also don't know. We we should probably talk to an amulet expert at some point on <laughs> what are the basis of these decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe just talk to Rossov and say like. In the side, like where does it, what matchups do you bring it in, and that would right. answer our question. Yeah, I mean he's got it in the sideboard, so he wants it for some number of matchups. Right, sure, right, right, and but. and demonstrably does not want it in specific other ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like I assume it is not what you want against these Death Shadow decks. Right, right. Um, but yeah, so yeah, it it really weird how we've got this sort of like striated top eight. We've got two Amulet Titan decks. We've got two Is It Phoenix decks. We've got two Shadow decks, although yeah. very very different. Shadow decks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Four color shadow, which I love. I'll be honest. <laughs> I uh, I love some monster swift spears and termogoyfs and wild nacodles in my shadow list. Just really going back to the good old days of just trying to get them dead with teamer battle rage. Hey, this was a you know this was a great standard deck. Three becomers, four teamer battle rages. I remember a lot of deck lists like Perfect. that. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels good. It it does. It feels good. Yeah. I mean, honestly, this this deck feels a lot more like in fact. That than anything else in my experience. Yeah. It kind of like a hybrid between Zoo and Infect, I'd guess. Yeah. Um, where you do have like a combo finish, but also your just like general beatdown plan is very strong. Mm-hmm. And unlike Infect, mostly immune or good against lightning bolts and gut shots, if anybody's still playing gut yes. shots. Yeah, right, for sure. Um, yeah, I would not want to play Infect right now. That's for no, sure. No. The, 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 you know, if we look at the top eight, it's... A bunch of Phoenix decks, which have a bunch of bolts, and uh, Death Shadow, which you can't ever beat, and... Uh, and look at this Esper Control <laughs> deck's removal And Esper, you're right, yeah, this Esper Control deck, hilarious. But, but, yeah, I do like that Shadow list. And then, you know, just kind of generally, we've seen traditional Grixis Shadow be doing pretty well lately. Mm-hmm. Just probably off the back of its matchup against Phoenix. But uh, also, you know, it's a powerful deck. Yeah. It's also... Any build of Death Shadow, whether it's an aggressive deck like Four Color Shadow or it's Grixis Death Shadow, any build of Shadow is better against Phoenix the less experienced your Phoenix opponent is. I, I think True. that this matchup from either side is like one of the most difficult to play in modern. Mm-hmm. Um, and I it, like constantly question my decisions while yeah, making yeah, it yeah. while while making them from the Phoenix side. Right. Um, so if you're trying to beat up on people who just became part of the twenty percent of the field, yeah, 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 and you know how to play a shadow deck, it's like that's why people are playing this deck right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean that makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, it feels like whenever we're discussing Shadows matchups, the phrase whoever is more experienced player is going to win <laughs> comes up very often. Yeah. And it feels like that's just like generally true a lot with Death Shadow, where like if you know the matchup better than your opponent does, you get a really significant edge. Mm-hmm. And you know, as a Shadow player, you can definitely maximize that on your end. The problem is, though, that when you 
play against somebody who really understands the matchup from whatever they're playing, yeah. you can be in a tough spot. Right. And if you pay one extra point of life... Oh, yeah. Very, un- very unforgiving. Yeah. For sure. Especially with threats like Art Light Phoenix coming at you, then... Yeah. is definitely impressed with the build of Shadow. Like, it's... You know, just looking at card choices in a lot of these lists really tells you a lot about the format. The fact that this super aggressive deck with Teamer Battle Rage and Become Immense is running two Dismembers and two Lightning Bolts. Like, we are killing something in the Ices. That's an important part of the format. Yep, Dismember is important. Absolutely. I was also just pretty impressed with... I, I mean, Alex is a very good player, former Invitational Champion, mm-hmm. I believe. His play on camera all weekend was very good, except for one moment where on his turn two... He, fe- he fetched a land and then realized that his fetch land could not fetch that land. Uh-oh. And that had impacted his turn one fetch, obviously, yeah, because yeah, yeah. he had planned on, getting. Okay. I, I, I think, getting, like, stomping ground into a godless shrine or something like that. You know, the, the full suite of colors. Uh, and that's one of the, you know, when you have a mana base like this, one blood crypt, one godless shrine, one overgrown tomb, one sacred foundry, one stomping ground... With three different fetch lands, so they it's, can't fetch all of your... The four-color shadow decks, and just kind of like any four-color deck that's running a fetch shock mana base, mm-hmm. your fetch lands and shock lands have to be very on point. Because if you screw it up, it sometimes it's just over. Yeah. And your, your draw can go from like a very clean, smooth curve out to just like dirtling and doing one thing a turn and Mm -hmm. that's just not acceptable with a deck like this yeah not when all of your spells cost one mana and you have to be very like if your turn two is supposed to be monastery swift spear and a wild nakatl Mm -hmm. and you just can't do that right that you're you're losing a lot of your velocity that way yeah yeah for sure um also a little bit of spice in the sideboard there some faith shields yes yeah so face shield in case you don't know the text of this card. <laughs> yeah yeah white, one white mana instant target permanent you control gains protection from the color of your choice until the end of a turn and it has fateful hour uh a little known mechanic from one of the worst sets in magic's history mm-hmm. avison restored uh if you have five or less life instead you and each permanent you control gains protection from the that color of your choice until end of turn yeah so so just kind of like an anti-removal spell that um, occasionally makes your whole guard. team unblockable or whatever right 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 yeah for sure uh, it can be very good. You know, and you get pretty low in this deck pretty quick. Yeah. You know. It, it's easy to get to five if you want to get to five. Absolutely. That's that's the, that's the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's the idea. <laughs> For sure. Yep. So Phoenix did, again, kind of dominate this weekend. Uh, Percentage-based-wise, absolutely. Yeah. On top. Not close. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I think 15 of the day two decks were Phoenix. Um, out of 68 total. Yeah. So the next solid... highest representation being like five. Five, yeah. Yeah. Um, and there were several decks around that point, including humans. Definitely seeing a resurgence in humans, which I have to directly attribute to cutting gut shots for surgical extractions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense, for sure. Just like cutting one of your best cards in the matchup for a completely dead card in the matchup changes it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. So card choices for these Phoenix decks... We're getting to a point where, like, the build, the overall build of the Phoenix deck is pretty locked in. Yeah. Except for some very specific slots. 
um, and the choices for those slots are, are kind of interesting, um, but we definitely have gotten to an, a sort of optimized point here. But so the sort of flex here is in the threat package, just how many Pyromancer Ascensions, how many Snapcaster Mages, how many Crackling Drakes. Yeah. And it, it really depends on what you think you're going to play against. But I think that right now, I wouldn't want to go below four total Crackling Drakes and Pyromancer's Ascensions. Yeah. Because those are your threats that actually work in the matchup in the mirror, especially post-board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just, you need to have a way to kill your opponent. and <laughs> Right. Those, yeah. those do it. The mirror, yeah, I mean, the mirror gets really grindy. And it mm-hmm. often comes down to whoever has that, like, kind of tertiary threat to, you know, arc lights and thing in the ice. Yeah. I was a fan of Chandra Torch of Defiance for a long time there in that yeah. slot. Oh, I like um, it too. Uh, and I, yeah, I definitely think I still am. I think that Chandra is just a phenomenal planeswalker and right. kind of always works well with whatever you need to do. And it gives you games. It's it's very flexible. You know, I like it against Jund. I like it against the blue control decks. I like it against War Prison. You know, there's just a lot of places where Chandra is a threat that gets around the, the ways your opponent is trying to stop you. They can't path it and Snaring Bridge doesn't do anything to it. Right. So. Yeah. One other interesting debate that has come up a lot is Molten Rain versus Blood Moon. Yeah. I was on the Blood Moon side of this, uh, particularly because one of the decks that I wanted to make sure that my land hate was effective against was Amulet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that Molten Rain is particularly good against it. Like, I always feel like kind of weird bringing it in against Amulet because there's a lot of situations that just doesn't right do anything. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes it buys you a turn, mm-hmm. but that's, like, the the best case scenario is that you, like, hit a crew, and then there are two turns behind, and you're like, yeah, we got them. Right. But uh, the number of times where, like, that doesn't work out, or, like, you just don't buy enough time because they just, like, have an amulet in play and more crews in their hand, and that just translates to all of the mana, right? Yeah. So it's it can definitely be really tough there, for sure. Yeah, or you you tap out to play your Molten Rain, and they're like, all right, well, now I get to just... I cast an Azusa, and then I just have all this mana to do stuff, and right. you're, you didn't get anywhere. Right. You, you can get them sometimes, but it's just not that reliable. It is definitely better uh, against Tron... Because you can combine it with Surgical, and because, like, Blood Mooning Tron, there's a decent chance that they just still get up to casting Thrag Tusks against you, which yeah. are very good. Yeah. And you can't double your Blood Moons with Pyromancer Ascensions, so adding Pyromancer Ascension makes any Sorcery sideboard card a little bit better. Right. The existence, the heavy play of Pyromancer Ascensions, I do think changes how people should be approaching their matchups against Phoenix. Before Pyromancer Ascensions, I was a pretty big advocate for not bringing in Rest in Peace out of a lot of decks yeah. uh, against Phoenix. But now, if you're anything but like a hyper-aggressive deck, like I still think Burn probably doesn't want Rest in Peace, but because Pyromancer Ascension is not good against Burn anyways. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I would definitely say it depends a lot on your plan against mm-hmm. Phoenix. Like, is Pyromancer Ascension turning on very, very detrimental to you, Yeah, you might want to consider some sort of answer to it. But, you know, if you're trying to just, like, kill him like Burn is, then definitely would not bring in, uh, you know, yeah. non-Burn cards. Right. <laughs> like, I, I think Leyline is actually pretty good out of Shadow right now. Yeah, um, yeah. 
just shutting because pyromancer ascension will beat you if you're playing grixis shadow and yeah, a pyromancer yeah. ascension comes into play or comes online at least so you know that kind of hate definitely gets better which in turn means that you can't be cutting too many crackling drakes from your 75 you, you know i get wanting to streamline the deck i get not wanting this four mana suspend spell in your deck yeah but it really gets around a lot of the hate cards so yeah People get mad at it. People talk about how it's the worst card. I cut it from the deck the first time I played the deck. <laughs> but it's it's important, man. It matters. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a really, really powerful card. Yeah. And people kind of, I think, see the variants involved in the card. And that is what, you know, gives them that kind of reaction of, oh, this sucks or mm-hmm. whatever. I keep on drawing it as a draw step and that's bad. Yeah. But you kind of have to consider, like all of the spectrum of where you get your percentage points and it definitely hits well in in that case yeah i mean the for me the worst thing about it about it is when it's in your opening hand and you can't really count it as a threat in your opening hand Mm -hmm. like you're happy to keep a hand that has a thing in the ice or has a phoenix in it because you know that you can start putting pressure on very early and that's not a thing that crackling drake is capable of so it, it doesn't like fill that part of the threat slot but it does a lot of other work that, you know, you, you pay a cost for having it in your deck. But yeah, you also win a lot of games off of the back of it. Absolutely. Also, another small thing. You know, we are getting to the point where, like, you know how Death Shadow is? Like, somebody will tweet, like, I put these two cards in my Death Shadow deck. This is a totally new deck now. Like, yeah. everybody bask in the glory. <laughs> right, right. Work. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's typically a trend for Shadow. It's, I love it. Uh, and we're kind of getting to that point with Phoenix where just, like, the, the choices of what to do with the flex slots are mm-hmm. so minute. And so one of the things is Echoing Truth versus Set Adrift. And Set Adrift yeah, is yeah. the... The Delve spell that puts a non-land permanent on top of their library. Echoing Truth is Echoing Truth. Set Adrift is a sorcery. It's a little cheaper. It relies on you having a graveyard. I I lean... If you're going to have one bounce spell main deck, I do think that Echoing Truth is a little bit more effective, but I get that like putting a card on top of the library is much better than... like I don't want to bounce a goyf against Jund or something like that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't know. I uh, I like. I think I'm partial to Echoing Truth as like a main deck option. Mm-hmm. Sideboard option, I I definitely don't mind um, Set Adrift mm-hmm. a little more. And kind of the reasoning for that is that like you know even against the decks where Echoing Truth is not going to be good, you're still playing Faithless Looting. So mm-hmm. I think that you can afford to have some number of like dead cards. Yeah. Um. You know, and we're we've even gone as far as to have you know main deck surgical extraction. So we're used to ha- having some matchups where you're like, all right, well let's just loot these away or yeah. whatever. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, Medic has enough selection where the consistency is there. I don't, you know, I don't need to worry about this one of really destroying everything. My right. all cantrips. So I'm going to be able to figure it out, right? <laughs> and, and, and you have way more than four Faithless Lootings, because by the time you have this Echoing Truth and you want to get rid of it, like, flashing back a Faithless Looting is completely oh, yeah. on the table. So. For sure, for sure. Also, the discussion of Opt versus Sleight of Hand. People keep making different choices. Mm-hmm. I So I know Jerry was pretty heatedly making the argument of sleight of hand being training wheels mm-hmm. because really you do get to see the same number of cards yeah. with either one as long as you are pretty focused 
on your understanding of the game state and what you're looking for. Right. Like sleight of hand, you get to look at the two cards and go, oh yeah, this one is better. Mm -hmm. But opt, you look at the one card and you're like, this is not good enough for what I want here. Then you put it on the bottom and you draw the other one. Yeah. Um, I honestly, I, I love this debate, (laughs) not because I have any camp involved, but because I think it's such a good highlight on how we, uh, argue our perspectives on things. Mm -hmm. Here's here's kind of my perspective on opt versus slight. Yeah. It's like not it doesn't matter. <laughs> you can play either one and your percentages are going to be pretty much the same. Probably. The cool thing though that this debate has brought into light is that there are very good rationalizations for both sides. Mm-hmm. Right? So people can have a strong rationalization for opt. I've heard three arguments for opt over slight that are very very strong. And, you know, would in a vacuum definitely sway me towards opt. I've heard, you know, at least three arguments for slight that are very, very rational and strong and well thought out and well presented arguments. But, you know, the reality is that they both have pros and cons. Yep. And I think that at this point we've determined that they, those, you know, if we listed out all the pros and cons. It's a little bit of a wash. It's it's pretty much a wash. It's, you know, it just it just doesn't matter. Like, do you like Slight better because you personally feel a little more compelled towards the arguments for Slight? Or do you like Opt better because you personally yep. feel a little more compelled Right, it, it tells those. you a little bit more about the person making the argument right. than it does about the actual... Yeah, story. honestly, for sure. It's like, um, it's like reading a Pitchfork review. Like, I didn't really yeah. learn anything about the album, but I really yeah. know a lot about the person who wrote this, this album. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> and the one thing I will caution people against when they're making their arguments for or against their preference here is that you want to make sure that you are being rational about listening to both sides of the argument and not married to your initial bias. Mm -hmm. Something that happens a lot here when people are arguing very, very nitpicky corner cases in magic and just in life is that people have something that they have decided is their favorite option Mm -hmm. and they allow their bias to get in the way of being able to talk rationally about oh, that yeah. argument. Guilty. Yeah. Like, no, completely. Yeah. We all are. It's just human nature. It's just how we function. It's it's called selective rationalization in reasoning. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, if we we are more we're more careful about the rationalizations when it's somebody else's presented argument. Mm-hmm. So they've actually done studies where they have like asked interviews like a, a long set of like questions and see like what rationalizations they come up with. And then like a week later, they'll bring them back and be like, present them with similar questions and then give that the rationalization that that same person has given a week before. But like if they didn't remember it, they would be like, no, that actually doesn't make any sense. because <laughs> And they they'll like argue against it this time or whatever. Um, so it, when it's presented to somebody else's argument, you're going to be more like, scrutinous on tearing apart that argument instead of like sure. if it's your argument you're gonna be like oh of course this makes sense i'm gonna i'm so good at rationalizing this i'm gonna <laughs> yeah. i'm gonna make some arguments for it or whatever so i think that you know the only thing i've really enjoyed about this often slight opt versus slight argument is that i get to see that everywhere and be like everybody's like married to their own opinions and and they do have good rational arguments for their side and they get like attached to that um, that is funny, yeah. But be, par- be careful about that in yeah. general. Um, it can be can be destructive to figuring out the best answer in a lot of senses if you if you get married to your favorite line or your favorite you know side of things. I I do right now prefer opt for a very specific reason okay. and a very specific play pattern, which is 
against dredge, you cut your bolts. So then you're very you're relatively low on instants that you can just th- toss off to flip thing exactly when you want to. Oh. And in that specific matchup, flipping thing exactly when you want to is very important. Mm-hmm. And because you're cutting several of your instants already, I like I just like the safety of having that extra number of them to do it with. Probably doesn't change the percentages that much, even in that specific matchup. It's certainly a very reasonable factor. It's just like, <laughs> that's my comfort zone yeah. in, in the dredge matchup, is I really like having that additional option there. Right. So, you know, that that's my thing. I totally get why you would prefer slight. And if, like, before a tournament I had accidentally left my ops at home and somebody handed me slights and was like, there's no ops available, mm-hmm. I'd be like, okay, fine. But yeah. My favorite argument for Opt has been uh, presented to me by Dylan. I think Dylan got it from Ross Merriam, mm-hmm. where he said that sometimes uh, you want to cast Opt as your turn one play, mm-hmm. but you're on the play, so you don't really know what you're playing against, so mm-hmm. you don't know what to look for. Oh, so if you, if you have to slight on your turn, and you look at like a bolt or another decent card, mm-hmm. and you have no idea if the bolt's good, what do you do? Right. But if you like pass the turn... And you see your opponent like plays a creature on turn one. You can opt, and if you see a bolt, you'd be like, "Oh yeah, okay, great." So gotcha. You're just more informed on what you're playing against. I totally get that. I do think it literally only matters in that exact situation because bolt is by far your highest variance card, like matchup dependent That's variance. Fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um, Usually you're doing proactive things, so it doesn't matter. Right, and like if I need a land. I know that mm-hmm. if I need a cantrip, I, or I guess, you know, if you're spending the opt, then you must not need a cantrip, you know, for like raw numbers to get the Phoenix back. If I need a Manamorphose or something, I know that. Yeah. But, you know, there, there's certainly like, it is not impossible. It is not rare to like sleight of hand, see a bolt as one of your two cards and then not know. Like, I, I totally get that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this actually, so yeah, so we cubed couple, yeah. you know, last week. And uh, we used the London Mulligan rule. We did. And we it, cubed. Was, it was great. It's hard. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, <laughs> so, and I know this because I, I mulliganed a lot in okay. that particular All right, session. okay. Yeah, so I'm so happy to hear about all of your London Mulligan stories. Well, I don't have too many, okay. but uh, after, I, I mulliganed like six times or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in half of them. In, in several of them, I wasn't sure which card to put back. Yeah. And in, like, half of them, a couple of turns in, I was like, damn it, I put the wrong card back. <laughs> um, especially one, uh, I was playing game one against Lee because we play round one every single time somehow. Yes. Um, it is, Out of, I, like, what, four or five? We're four for four so far. <laughs> four for four. With this cube. Impressive. Um, we're 500 against each other, so. <laughs> well, good. But, yeah, so game one against Lee, I had a hand with... Uh, three lands, and I was playing like a white-based uh, equipment-heavy deck with kind of like all of the equipment guys, so Pure Steel Paladin and Sram and Kemba. And so my hand was like three lands, a couple of guys, and uh, a Palace Jailer, and a Loxid and Warhammer. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to choose between Palace Jailer and Loxid and Warhammer because those... I, I couldn't put back a land. I certainly couldn't start with two lands on the play. Like, that's just asking for it with a deck as mana-hungry as mine. And I didn't know whether or not Warhammer or Palace Jailer would be more powerful 
especially because I just didn't know what cards were in Lee's deck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went with Palace Jailer because I've seen it ruin so many legacy games. How could it <laughs> not be insane? Oh, no, it, the card's just nuts, so um, for sure. But then it turned out that Lee was pretty creature-heavy, mm-hmm. and Locks in a Warhammer crushes creature-on-creature matchups, yeah. especially when you're racing and yeah. stuff. And on around turn six or seven, I had a Palace Jailer that I just couldn't do anything with. And yeah. if I had a Locks in a Warhammer, I just could have run away with the game. Yeah, for sure. So there's going to be a lot... I feel like I don't have that many games where my scry six turns in. I'm like, damn, I really did the wrong thing with that scry. Yeah, right. It's going to happen a lot with yeah. the London Mulligan. Yeah, role. no, absolutely. Especially uh, in scenarios when you're in the dark about what's going on. The That, that decision is going to be really, really difficult. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like we talked about this a little bit before, but uh, that Mulligan rule benefits people proactive decks so much and mm-hmm. kind of punishes reactive decks a lot yeah. because the proactive decks are going to be like, oh, hey, I need these pieces. Right. And then the, the reactive deck is going to be like, I wonder what, which of these like, you know, niche I've interactive got, spells are better. <laughs> I've got, yeah, three lands, a Goyf, a Liliana, a Bolt, right. and a Thoughtseize. What, right. Yeah. What do, what, what do you know? Like, like the, sure, there's a right one to put back, but like... Mm-hmm. It just doesn't. It's, it's tough not to helping get you to that, that much, and it is sure. also hard. Like, right? Yeah. It's. I mean, I'm certainly. I'm. <clears throat> I'm sure it's going to add a lot of depth to our keeper mall section here on the podcast because yeah. not only is it going to be a keeper mall, but it's going to be uh, all right. And what do we? Uh, what do we put? What back? do we put back? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, that's that's gonna. I, I feel like we've been doing pretty good with these keeper malls. Yeah. Having a good, I like solid, like, you know, we moved away from the like. Well, this is a pretty good hand, but it only has one land thing. Like, we did that right. a couple of times, and then we've really gotten <laughs> yeah. sort of more advanced. But this is going to really give a lot of depth to those discussions. So, yeah. so if if only for that, I'm right. for the London Mulligan. I, absolutely. Yeah. You know, anything that, you know, adds more intricacy to magic, I'm I'm generally for. So. Yeah. Any thoughts on Jace Friend's Prodigy and Grixis Shadow? This is one of those... Oh, yeah. I, I changed two slots in my Grixis Shadow deck, and everybody look at this revolutionary thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, well, it, it, where did it originate? It did well in Sam Party's Grand Prix Finals. Yeah, I think it, it's a Sam Party thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, uh, the arguments that I've heard in favor of it have been kind of contradictory to themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember the specifics of like what I heard and why I didn't like it as much. But I don't know. I'm, I'm generally not a fan of JVP and Grixis Shadow. I think that you want to be doing kind of more, like more proactive things. Mm-hmm. And it's like, a, you know, so I'm pretty sure that the argument that Sam made was that he wanted his deck in general to be like very proactive. He wanted to like quickly be doing fast things and uh, turboing out Gurmag Anglers quickly. That's why he wanted all the Mistress Bobbles. But if you're doing that and you want to maximize your chances of your deck being like landing big, powerful threats quickly and ending the game quickly. I don't know why we're you spending know, in, that, two. in that mindset and also spending turn two playing a slow, yeah. grindy Planeswalker card. Right. Like, it feels like you would want to do one or the other there. Mm-hmm. Uh, be that, like, proactive turbo Gurmag Angler deck where you're just, like, trying to slam a threat as fast as possible. Or you can try to t- turn your deck into a different direction yeah. and add some value cards like JVP. Yeah. I know Dylan's criticism was... Very simple, which is we cut two cantrips for these Jaces, and yeah. 
you can't keep one-line hands with a Jace in them. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. And there are a lot of one-line hands that you yeah. want to keep in this deck. So Yeah. So, yeah. generally not a fan. Yeah. I, I'm not huge on it. I mean, I'm a big Jace Vern's Prodigy fan, so I would, I would love to... But, like, the things I'm scared of out of Death Shadow are basically, like, when a Gurbang Angler comes down really fast with Stubborn Denial back up. Yeah. And... This is not that. I mean, it, right. it definitely makes your turn three probably quite good. Yeah. But, yeah, it's not doing the thing that I'm scared of out of Grixis Death Shadow. So, right. should we spend our last 20 minutes or so on some spoilers? We got some spoilers. I'm yeah. for spoilers. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So, a bunch of cool stuff from, like, very different categories. Uh, we're going to start off with Massacre Girl. Yeah. Uh, three and two black for a four four. Oh, I thought she was a three three. She's better than I thought. She's a four four. Four four menace for menace. five. Menace. Legendary creature, human assassin. When Massacre Girl enters the battlefield, each other creature gets minus one, minus one until end of turn. Whenever a creature dies this turn, each creature other than Massacre Girl gets minus one, minus one until end of turn. So kind of like this stacking effect where if your opponent has like, you know, the dream scenario, your opponent has a one, one and a two, two and a three, three, you get to kill them all with Massacre Girl because each time, you know, her effect kills one of the creatures, you know, it's going to ratchet up a little bit. And it doesn't need to be perfect either. Mm -hmm. If they have two one ones and a three, three. Right. Everything's going to die. Yeah. Yeah. So I think as long as you're starting off with one toughness creatures, mm-hmm. there's a really good chance the board just gets wiped yeah. from there. And I think I'm pretty terrified of this card in a limited context. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, attacks and like this card existing, it makes attack and attacks and blocks very difficult. Mm-hmm. Because say your opponent makes this weird attack where they're like representing something and not all their attacks are like profitable or exactly. Yeah. They might be setting up Massacre Girl where they want you to block in certain ways where that minus one, minus one comes down and ends up, you know, killing a lot of things that you don't want it to. And even if I put them on Massacre Girl, I'm not confident in my ability to math it out and do the optimal play against this thing. Because well, like, yeah. even if you don't block into it, then you're probably just taking extra damage, and then they just start getting a huge benefit from the Massacre Girl in their hand. And my general philosophy in Limited is that I don't play around rares. I don't really play around anything. Yeah, I, I won't play around a rare unless I've seen it in my opponent's deck yeah. before. You know, I, I will play around things, but but not not rares. I will play around instant speed minus five minus five in this format. Sure, sure yeah, that exactly. is a common. Right, but. right. But yeah, but I think this card is really cool and flavorful. Even it might in like a constructed context, it might be. A, a sideboard option against like tokeny decks, maybe, but I honestly know. I think it is a really powerful sweeper against some of these decks. Yeah, if my opponent plays, so so I mean, one of the big problems is that she doesn't get anything if there's not a one toughness creature in play. Mm-hmm. So that's I think the biggest thing standing in her way from being a playable card. Yeah. So like if your opponent has a Tristani in play, like they went first, or they have a Lana War Elves or something, and they get a Tristani in play before you cast Massacre Girl, she doesn't really do anything against one of the decks that she should be very good against. Right. Um, so you need to be able to set things up, and so if that means that okay, well all of my t- point removal and my deck kills cards like Tristani. Yeah. So then you can kill the Tristani and then she comes down and she kills everything and leaves a 4-4 menace in play. Right. Anytime that happens, that's powerful enough for Constructed. Yeah. It's just a question of how likely is that to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, If I'm playing Sky March or Aspirin in my deck, I'm terrified of this card. 
you know, you, you're going to have to make your play patterns to play around this. You're going right. to have to try to make sure to... It's a chain whirler on steroids. Right, right. Yeah. Like, chain whirler is scary enough, and yeah. a big part of that is that it comes down on turn three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as if you make a mistake and you leave a guy with one toughness in play, like... Just one. It just could, one. It could start the whole chain. It all, yeah. It's like, are you going to not have any two toughness? Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so... I think it the existence of this card in decks is going to like really influence play patterns and stuff like you don't get to make you know attack with a couple of guys pump the rest with my venerated loxodon like you got to give your sky marcher aspirant that second toughness and stuff very important um, yeah you got to keep your benelish marshal in play that sort of thing I I think this card is potentially very important and you can also set it off with your creatures if you're playing green right. black and you have a merfolk branch walker at 2-1 you just sort of like leave that in play, and then whenever you cast your massacre girl, she's probably wiping the board. That's actually a really good point, for sure. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't consider the fact that your own creatures could be like, you know, if you only need because we already said like against X twos, you only need one one toughness creature to mm-hmm. set the chain off. Yeah. So you know, if you're if you're the one with that X one, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, yeah. I mean, my initial reaction was that this card was a little too. It like could potentially be too narrow, mm-hmm. but the more you've been talking about it, the more I think that you know it could potentially be you know if people do decide to play a lot of this in a lot of numbers, it's it would be format warping because in the same way that Chain Whirler was very format warping when it first came out, because nobody could just nobody could afford to play X ones. Yeah, and you know if Masquerade Girl is that kind of card. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I mean, my starting point is just anytime she comes down and wipes the whole board and leaves a 4-4 menace in play. Of course, yeah, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Absolutely. It just depends on how often you can do that. Right, right. Um, next, we got a reprint. We've got good old Augurabolus. Augurabolus. Two mana, one three. Look at the bottom three cards of your library. No, great. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> one three, look at the bottom three cards of your library. Um, Classic. <laughs> when it comes into play, you look at the top three cards of your library, choose an instant or sorcery, reveal it, put it in your hand, put the rest on the bottom of your library. Yeah. Um, I think this is a really big card for decks that are not quite there yet, specifically like Grixis. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, the, the deck that's all point removal and thought erasures and then like four and five mana threats really struggles against cheap go wide decks a a two mana one three that replaces itself most of the time (laughs) (laughs) yeah probably helps that sort of thing yeah no for sure i think that it's going to give some of the blue decks a lot of help uh you know against both mono red and mono white yeah yeah, I mean, those are the two matchups specifically. I don't think it's, like, actively good against anything else. Yeah. But it's not, you know, because you could play cards that are specifically good against Mono Red and Mono White. Like, you know, if I'm Grixis, I could put some Cries of the Carnarium in my main deck or something. But that's so embarrassing to draw when I get matched up against Esper. Yeah. Here's a card that's not dead against those decks. So, yeah. Next, we have the Buy a Box promo. <laughs> yeah. Deseret, Master of the Bridge. Four blue and a black, five loyalty for a legendary Planeswalker Tezzeret. Uh, static ability. Creature and Planeswalker spells you cast have affinity for artifacts. Plus two, Tezzeret, Master of the Bridge, deals X damage to each opponent, where X is the number of artifacts you control. You gain X life. Minus three, return target artifact card from your graveyard to your hand. Minus eight, exile the top ten cards of your library. Put all artifact cards from among them onto the battlefield. 
So this is about the power level that I want in my biobat. Yeah. Mm, fine, but not that good. Yeah, those and, abilities just yeah. The I mean the loyalty abilities are really just not no exciting. Yeah. The plus two to gain no real value. Well, other honestly, than... the, the plus two is a lot more powerful than the minus three. What, uh, the minus three yikes. raise deads and artifacts. <laughs> right. That's yeah. Awful. Uh, the plus two is half mm-hmm. of Tezzeret Agent of Bolus's ultimate. Yeah. So that's like decent. Uh, you gotta be a heavy artifact deck. Right, yeah. Sometimes even even Agent of Bolus takes a while yeah. to, for it to be like a, a relevant thing that you wanna do. Mm-hmm. Um and half of that is like mm, mm. yeah. Like maybe, you know, maybe if you're super heavy artifacts, it only takes like three upticks to kill your opponent. But, you know, some planeswalkers can uptick twice and then ultimate and they right, win, you right, know, right. so it's not. Um, <clears throat> the only really cute thing that I see here is creatures and planeswalker spells you have you can tr- you cast have affinity for artifacts. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, all of his abilities really require you to be playing a ton of artifacts. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, which is very tough in standard, and then he's just too expensive for other formats. There just aren't a lot of good artifacts in standard that are incidental. But I do feel like we are getting seeded with enough cards that are hinting at artifacts that we may have artifacts in our future. Sure. If that's the case, and I guess this won't be around for very long, but giving affinity for artifacts to your creatures and planeswalker spells is exceptionally powerful if there are no colored mana symbols mm-hmm. in those spells. Right. Yeah. So if I'm going to cast a Karn off of this for free the turn that I cast this, yeah. or a Karn and a, an artifact creature or something Now we're like doing that, something powerful. Then we're doing something. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I don't... <laughs> Without that, there's no way. Right. I don't, I'm not generally a fan of playing bad cards to make my other cards a little better. Right. You so. got to really want to be like doing this plus two or yeah, something yeah, yeah. like that. It's a tough sell for me, but that's the fine for a bio box problem. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it doesn't have like time walk on it or anything like, whew, let's, let's not. Right. <laughs> let's calm down a little bit on these bio box promos. Thank, thank goodness. It's so. not an instant speed time walk that you can cast infinite times in a game. So mm-hmm. I'm happy. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, we. I gotta say, kind of called that card being a bad design. Yeah, no, you are totally right. You're <laughs> yeah. like, I'm, I'm concerned they're gonna print a card that's gonna make this way too good, and they were just <laughs> like, how about Wilderness Reclamation? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, next up, we've got Tulsimir, friend to wolves. Not exciting when I read it the first time, but the more I think about it, the more I'm like kind of into this in certain spots. Okay, two. Green, green, white, so five mana total, three, three, elf scout. When Tulsmere, friend to wolves, enters the battlefield, create Voja, friend to elves, a legendary three, three, green and white wolf creature token. So adorable flavor. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. um, whenever a wolf enters the battlefield under your control, you gain three life, and you may have that creature fight up to one target creature and opponent controls. If I'm mono white or mono red, and my opponent taps five mana and casts this, like, I feel like that game is pretty over. It's It does a lot. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, you get you get two bodies, uh, you get three life. You, you get know, like a you get, shock, you get basically. To, you, right, you get to fight some things, which is you know fine. Um, but uh, but you know that's a lot of value. So if you're you know if you're coming, you know if this is coming down, uh, you could even like trade one of the wolves off for like a um, a chain whirler, like worst case. Yeah, right? and yeah. That, if you have to, you're still getting a three for one. Right. Yeah, yeah, and the, like that three life is. You know, way huger than you in the game when you gain three life. 
and it matters, yeah. then it's like, oh, that feels good. Wow. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, get this three life. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Go from seven to 10. Right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah. Like, I think just a decent sideboard one or two of against aggressive decks. You know, it's very specific. This green, green, white mana cost is restrictive. Mm. It is. Um, but especially in a mid rangey thing, uh, I think given some of the other cards we have seen, there's a decent chance that rather than Sultai, we might want to be playing Abzan-based mid-range decks, and this is a great card to, like, find finality or whatever, so... Yeah. I guess I can let you read some of these cards instead of... <laughs> I'm, I'm actually kind of excited about this next one. Yeah. Um, so this next one is Neoform. So it's a green-blue sorcery. Mm-hmm. As an additional cost to cast a spell, you sacrifice a creature. Uh, it says, search your library for a creature card with converted mana cost equal to one plus the sacrifice creature's converted mana cost. Put that card onto the battlefield with an additional plus one plus one counter on it, and then shuffle your library. Mini Eldritch Evolution. It, yeah, exactly. It's Mini Eldritch Evolution. So I feel like they're slowly trying to rebuild the pod archetype. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, in in modern, where they're like slowly introducing these like you know slightly better creatures on curve that are like you know like reasonably curved for a modern power level, mm-hmm. and then also giving us like a little bit of an extra way to have like you know toolboxy cards and yeah. toolbox options without it being an overwhelming effect like without it being birthing pod yeah without it being actual birthing pod yeah. which is gross <laughs> yeah you don't oh, you, you, you don't want this card on a stick it's fine it's no. like a reasonable card on its own you well can, you, you can put it on a stick as long as you have to like wait a turn like vanifar is totally fine yeah oh yeah but sure. it having an effect the turn you cast it and then every turn after that yeah is that's a lot yeah um so, right, but I, I do like that we're getting cards like this because yeah. I think that this is, like, one of those cards that could trickle into eternal formats like modern and, um, like, create new archetypes, facilitate helping out archetypes that are currently not very strong. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm for yeah. it. does a couple of cool things. Um, you can sort of turn it into an Eldritch Evolution because it doesn't exile itself. So if you neoform something into like a snapcaster mage and then snap it back you can go from one to three sort of uh i mean that costs like extra mana but you know like if you went to a four get your like um get goblin dark dwellers as your five then you get to flash this back sacrifice the goblin dark dwellers and go up to six so you get to have a little more flexibility Mm -hmm. that you give up you know, because yeah. this only goes up one. It's not one or less. Like, you can't get a smaller creature. You right. have to go one up. Um, in standard, that plus one, plus one counterpart becomes a little more relevant. Um, you can get Incubation Druid, and then it's turned on. Yep. You have to specifically sacrifice, like, your Lanoir Elves, though. So you're really... I mean, on your third turn, you will have six mana. Yeah. So, as long as they don't lightning strike your guy. Right. But, uh... I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you're I'm really sure crossing that, your fingers. I'm sure that people will slowly discover the best, like you know, chains or whatever yeah. for this card. So yeah, but yeah, I mean, I do like that you can like get it back with Eternal Witness, mm-hmm. and you know, Eternal Witness is going to be in these decks. Yeah. So yeah, 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 definitely trying to chain it on up. Yeah, I, I think it's got a lot of potential. This next card is a lot simpler to use. This right. is Solar Blaze, two a red and a white for a sorcery. Each creature deals damage to itself equal to its power. Yep, yep. It's kind of like a Wrath Effect, but you could build your deck so that, you know, it's a one-sided Wrath Effect, mm-hmm. and that can definitely be very strong. Um, yeah, you if, know, we've if, already got some very strong red-white 
creatures that have higher toughness than power. Yep. I'm thinking about Aurelia is jumping to mind immediately. Yep. Um, the 2-3 the Mentor. Yeah. It's, you know, not the best card, but that lets you run an aggressive 2-drop that doesn't die to this. Yeah, exactly. If, if For sure. We're in a format where you want that. Mm-hmm. Um, There's another one coming up that might be kind of yeah. good. So. <laughs> um, and I, honestly, I think this is just, you know, I was playing a Jeskai Niv-Mizzet deck for, like, especially on Arena for a while. And one of the big, one of the reasons that I put it down was because there were a bunch of green decks. And if my opponent recognized that I was Jeskai and made some decent plays, then they would choose to make their Growth Chamber Garden a 4-4 before doing anything else. Yeah. And then they would play a Gruel Spellbreaker as a 4-4. And then I'm right. just looking at this Deafening Clarion in my hand like, oh, I guess I die. Right, yeah, that's a bummer. <laughs> um, yeah. And so having a bigger Wrath really helps a, a control deck like that, too. Yeah, um, absolutely, for sure. And it, you know, it, it depends. If, if people... If some of the creatures that people tend to be running have higher toughness than power, then this becomes a lot worse. Most constructed quality creatures, that's not the case. Yeah. So, uh, and if we didn't just have Kaya's Wrath printed in the last set, then I think we would be actively flipping out about the existence of this card. <laughs> right. Yeah. So... Four mana Wrath, oh no! Yeah. <laughs> um, I think this card is actually a pretty big deal. No, yeah, for sure. I, um... It, it is a four mana wrath in a lot of contexts, and mm-hmm. that is very, very strong. Yeah. And it also might be one of those format warping cards where uh, the existence of this card defines the threats. The threats, mm-hmm. right? People are going to be like, oh, I have to, you know, play some some of these kind of creatures to make sure that I don't get blown out by Solar Blaze all the time. And, and the fact that they'd be doing that would be generally already better for control decks because you're not you know, playing the optimal great. damage output. Yeah, exactly. That sounds phenomenal for yeah. control decks. It was like, oh, a bunch of two threes. I, <laughs> I can deal with this. I have like two more turns in this game. That's just great, just inherently by the deck selection process. But yeah, and the fact that in your red and white control deck, you can run this and Deafening Clarion to give yourself coverage that way. Sure. Whatever you want your sweeper suite to be, mm-hmm. yeah. that's pretty powerful. And I will say that. You know, later in the game, uh, even if your opponent is, like, playing around this card by their creature power and toughness, a Solar Blaze plus a Deafening Clarion will, is, will probably get the, all of the stuff. True, yeah. true. Or Solar Blaze plus an expansion is going to do the same thing true. most of the time. I guess yeah. that won't kill Aurelia still, but most playable creatures. It's, it's a bummer. Yeah. But if you're playing if Aurelia, you're playing uh, Aurelia. Uh, okay, all right. <laughs> well, and so we actually, we do have a lot of red-white guys that survive this, weirdly enough, including yeah. this next spoiler, Feather the Redeemed. So this is red-white-white for a legendary angel, 3-4 flying. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell that targets a creature you control, exile that card instead of putting it into your graveyard as it resolves. If you do, return it to your hand at the beginning of the next end step. That's... That sounds really powerful. The problem is that the kind of card that you're going to be able to recur with this mm-hmm. is very narrow. Like, yeah. So let's go over what we're talking about. Pump spells. End of list. Uh, okay, yeah, so, you know, very, definitely very powerful text in the terms of, like, you get to recur stuff, that's really, really powerful, but you're gonna, you know, whatever we're recurring. Is there any, like, you know, cantripping cards that could be, like, you know, is there, like, a white, what was the, you know, plus one, plus oh, draw card? 
kind oh, of like deal. A, yeah, yeah, like a guided strike kind of thing yeah. or something like that. Are there any of those right now in Standard? I don't think there's anything that targets, because the stuff I'm thinking of is like Warlord's Fury and Crash Through, which doesn't target. Okay. Um, yeah, that might have been very intentional. Yeah. Um, Design-wise. So I don't know that you can get... So what you really want to be doing is having some pump spells in your deck that you actively want to be casting anyway. It's like you want to be putting this on your guy. So if this is a Naya deck and you're casting Colossus every turn, right? then that's going to end the game very quickly. I mean, also, this is just a 3-4 flying body for 3 mana. Um, no, I mean, I think that just like on curve-wise... Uh, this card's very strong. It's a 3-4 three, for 3. Yeah. That flies. And it is an angel if you're a Lyra-based creature deck. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's something. Red, white, I'm Boris Angels. It's been an archetype before. Yeah. I do it again. I think this is a really great card in that kind of deck because it's a 3-drop that can block very well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's that's pretty important. And the if I remember correctly, the way that Boros Angels played out most of the time was that you played the angels to stabilize, and eventually you turn the corner. Right. So, like, this sizing is very appropriate for that. Yeah. Yeah, that ability, I don't know how exploitable it really is. Right. One thing that I saw with it that was kind of hilarious is Reckless Rage. Okay. This is an Ixalan block limited removal spell. It's one red mana for an instant. It deals four damage to target creature you don't control and two damage to target creature you control. Oh, <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Um, I don't know plays. that you can afford to put honestly, that kind of card in your deck, but honestly, I think that plays. Yeah, yeah, it's possible. Like if you're if you're gonna be playing feather, like reckless rage is not, it's not a bad card, as long as your deck can handle. If your other cards in your deck are like the the two mana two three, right? Like I mean, if we want to go really deep, you know, our deck can just be like a bunch of big butt creatures and the wrath and yeah. you know some reckless rages like all right i mean i can't see beating this with any creature based like <laughs> aggressive or even like pretty grindy deck like yeah i can see beating this with my kaya's wrath mortify deck though right. that right. that seems very bad against that sort of strategy yeah but that's what sideboards are for mm-hmm. although red and white generally i don't know what kind of sideboard cards you're bringing in to fix the control matchup out of that kind of deck Experimental Frenzy. Yeah, I guess mostly Experimental Frenzy. That's fine. But, you know, we're playing more of like an Angel's deck with like Wraths and stuff. I don't know. Just kind of cast like one spell a turn. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, I guess every creature will deal damage to itself. Um, What's next? (laughs) Well, you get to take out the Wraths for the Experimental Frenzies. Fair. Um, But yeah, we're running like Reckless Rage against the Teferi deck. Mm -mm. That's probably not great. Mm Mm-mm. So that's probably all the spoilers that we really need to talk. You know, there's some more exciting cards. We've definitely got our full set review show coming up. Yeah. And what we're going to do for that is we're going to switch things up a little bit. Okay. So what we're going to do, because we've had some shows and we've made some predictions. Yeah. I have not acted on some of those predictions. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. You might recall some of our predictions included... Teferi. Uh-huh, yeah. This card is really scary. <laughs> yeah, exact words. Right. I don't like what this card's going to do to standard. Uh-huh. Guess how many Teferis I bought? None. None. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we were pretty high on rekindling Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. I bought those at $30 a piece. But, like, later on. Too yes. late. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Way too late. Right. right. We kind of missed on Arclight Phoenix, but we gave it a possibly playable grade when it was, like, $3. Right. And uh, also Hydroid Crisis. 
I said was definitely a four of. Yeah. I didn't buy them until I was playing Sultai at a Star City. <laughs> yeah, and they and were a bunch. Hard to find because everybody was buying them. <laughs> we, we've got a Molly. Yes, she probably idea. needs to guest host. <laughs> oh. Okay, goodbye, Molly. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. So, what I'm going to try to do is avoid having any of those happen. Uh-huh. You know, we can't... We're not going to be perfect. We're going to miss some cards. Yeah. But cards like, this is potentially playable, and it's a $3 Mythic right now. I'm mm-hmm. going to buy some. Right. Let's not miss out on those. Yeah. Uh, Hydra Crisis. This card's definitely a four of in right. a bunch of decks. Let's yeah. not miss out on that. So what we're going to do is a pre-order based. Uh-huh. New rating system. Yes. People have been asking for a new rating system for a long time. It's... We're ready. Yes. <laughs> so... The pre-orders, the, the the new rating system is just going to be how many of this card is CCR going to pre-order? <laughs> yeah, zero, one, two, three, or four. Oh, all right, um, okay, I'm in. And this is going to be a little squishy because it's going to depend. But you're, on... you're going to have to follow through. You, you know, post your like. Uh... Oh yeah, yeah, and I don't know if we're going to do that as like a Patreon bonus or something like that, so you can like get my pre-order list written out or whatever. <laughs> I don't know exactly what's the best way to do it. And, and then I think what we should do then is like a month later or two months later or something like that, follow up and see what the value True. of that purchase is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See how much we need to adjust things mm-hmm. and right and, and, and the ratings are going to be a little squishy because uh liliana death or general i think is going to be very good yeah but it's a six mana planeswalker that's already twenty dollars right. i'm probably right. going to buy two yeah but i'll explain why you know we'll, we'll figure out what's the right number and yeah, why yeah, yeah. and it's going to be based on price and all these things but i think i think it'll be an interesting and fun way because <laughs> we'll be this. able to you know we'll be able to both talk about you know, our, our predictions on how strong the card's going to be, and then also we can get into the financial bit a yeah. little bit as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like if we had, had taken this approach, like, four years ago, mm-hmm. I would have been nailing it. I used to be <laughs> on prices. I could tell you exactly how much a card would be in, like, you know, two months or whatever. But lately, I have been in the privileged position of not needing to buy a lot of cards. Right. So I don't know what any cards cost anymore. <laughs> so. Well, maybe if we do this and then check ourselves at we're gonna learn we're gonna get better we'll get better absolutely that's i'm excited about that for sure so it should be fun hopefully we'll help our listeners as well with these these sorts of concepts and yeah i just don't want to like i have specific phrases that i said about these cards and then didn't buy them yep specifically teferi is scary and hydrocrasis is a four of and i just those were both true (laughs) those were both true (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely we gotta we gotta put our money where our mouth is you know that's the plan yeah cool excellent excellent um all right so let's see if we've got a patreon question of the week so lee asks I find that I perform much better with unusual decks or decks not many people play or are experienced playing against. I think I play well, but I also know that many of my opponents do not play well against me. What's a good way to learn or evaluate your results when there's a weird outside factor like this influencing the results? So I think that Lee's done a very good job identifying that there are a lot of different factors that go into your win percentage. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and you can break them down into a bunch of different categories uh, and we kind of have to do with like people's like knowledge areas and everything. And this is definitely one of the bigger things where um, sometimes your equity in a tournament can definitely come from uh, 
playing an out-of-left-field strategy. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when I played Humans in Cincinnati for the first time, nobody had played, right. had come close to considering <laughs> a deck like that, right? And, you know, I went undefeated in the tournament, and that wasn't really as representative of the you know my play that tournament or you know the strength of the deck inherently it was just that you know combination of all of those factors it was just nobody was ready for it yeah. both in like nobody had a plan and i had decent plans in all the matchups and everybody else was just kind of like you know caught and off guard to be fair you you played quite well i, I played all right and you mulliganed well <laughs> and you yeah. sure but the idea is that you know you can definitely look for equity in your win percentages kind of like outside of the box yeah right you know, identifying that you tend to play stranger decks and get equity that way is, uh, you know, it's a very real concept mm-hmm. that you can lean on a little more heavily than you might anticipate. Right. And those win, those wins are real. You get an right. extra win in a tournament yeah. because your opponent didn't know how to play against you. Yeah. That's still three points. No, for sure. And uh, and that's a perfect point because kind of the next thing I was going to say was that you shouldn't consider these wins any less than. Wins that you get because you played very well, mm-hmm. right? You're, you know, you're still utilizing equity to get those win, to get that win percentage, right? And and the wins that come from that are just as valid as the wins that you get by like outskilling your opponent or yep. whatever. Um, you know, other factors that are similar are like metagaming heavily for mm-hmm. a tournament where you expect everybody to play a certain deck. Like I, I honestly, I think that uh, Alan's, you know, uh, Esper deck from. Uh, this previous tournament was definitely had some of those like external win percentage factors yeah. that were a little unusual. Like he decided to metagame and bring a deck that was really well tuned to this field. He probably got a lot of very real wins from that decision that weren't him simply playing better than his opponents. When I'm playing in a modern tournament, my opponent plays two cards and then I kind of expect that I know the other if not 75, at least the 60 cards in their main deck. Right. If that changes, then a lot of my like ability to make decisions in modern mm-hmm. kind of gets thrown out the window and yeah. I'm left leaning on a different skill set. No, I mean, absolutely, for sure. So, you know, I guess kind of like the, the moral to take away from this is like, if you believe that you're getting equity in certain areas of magic, you know, don't belittle that. Don't Magic isn't just playing better than your opponents. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of it, for sure, and you still have to play to a certain level to compete at all. That's but, not enough to win um, the tournament most of the time. it's certainly not enough to win the tournament, and Magic's just made up of so many more factors mm-hmm. um, and, like, ways to get edges, uh, and I, I love that part of the game. I think it's really important to the health of Magic in general that you, you know, people can utilize their own personal skill sets, right. right? Like, you know, some people are brewers and they can get a lot of equity that way. And some brewers end up doing like spiking tournaments and doing really well because they like nailed it for a weekend mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, you know, other people are like technical players and they just play the best deck and play it better than everybody else. That's where they get their equity. Mm-hmm. Other people are, you know, they match their sideboard um, exactly to what they expect that right. weekend is going to be and do a good yeah. job of anticipating. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There, there are definitely a lot of different areas that you can have strengths in in Magic. Uh, and this is one of them. Yeah, and this is certainly one of them. Um, so I think the key here is to identify when that is a concern. So if you lean on this really heavily and you do well enough to qualify for the Players' Championship, right? this is going to be something that's not buying you as many points in a tournament like that. 
Right. Because you're going to play against people who have jammed thousands of games of Modern because they play the Star City, they play every tournament in the Star City circuit, and they're going to be, you're going to show up with a weird deck, and they'll be like, oh yeah, I I jammed 10 matches against my friend playing that deck the other week because I wanted to be ready for it. Mm. Um, So yeah, just you you need to identify when this isn't going to be buying you the percentage points. And once you do, then you do need to figure out what is my actual like win percentage with this deck against somebody who knows how to play against it. And I mean, honestly, like the best thing then, and this is one thing I'm really looking forward to because we've got some plans with Zan and Jeremy to get a house together. And I'm really, really looking forward to jamming sets of matchups. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's really important. I don't get enough opportunities to do it. Uh, right now, I've got this notebook right in front of me, and this is about to be my Phoenix notebook. Because um, okay. I want to take all of the players in the area who are good with specific decks, and I want to sit down, and I want to jam with them, and I want to sit there with like a 30-card sideboard and figure out what my plan is supposed to be and talk things over with everybody. And And I think jamming sets is a really good way, once you've gotten a few matches in, now you're playing against somebody who's experienced playing against your deck. Right. And then you can identify, like, then they right. start identifying lines and you can get a closer, a better idea of what right. the matchup is like. Yeah, for sure. And then you go to a tournament mm-hmm. and a majority of your opponents won't have that kind of experience and you get some very real equity there, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And um, this is one of the reasons why I stuck on Living End for so long. Yeah, because uh, you just knew all the stuff. I knew the stuff and my opponents... Very often did not, and right. it, I would cast a ricochet trap on the cryptic command when they were trying to counter my thing and uh, counter my living end, and yeah. they would die. Yeah, uh, and they'd never they'd have to read the card, and then they'd <laughs> almost always call a judge to ask about how it worked. But it would end with me winning the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you knew it would. <laughs> I knew it would. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, cool. Um, but yeah, yeah, cool question. Definitely, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that's going to be it for us this week. Thank everybody so much for listening. Um, really appreciate you coming to hang out. If you want to find us online, you can check out our website at mggrindcast.com. We've got links to all the shows there. We've got links to our Patreon, and we've got links to Collins's coaching services. You can also go straight to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast if you would like to support us. It'd be very cool. Come hang out in the Discord with other really cool people. Get some tokens, etc., etc. Maybe get the pre-order list, or maybe we're just pubbing that got to figure out what how exactly we're doing this um if you want to find us on social media i am tweeting from at ccr underscore grindcast and collins is also on twitter at collins mullen thanks so much for listening and have a great week peace